Well, good morning, everyone. It is indeed a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for the conveners for inviting me to this conference. And I'd like you to turn with me, please, to Zechariah chapter 1. Zechariah chapter 1. <clears throat> I'd like to read the first six verses and then from verse 14 through 17. So Zechariah 1 through 6 and then verses 14 through 17. <clears throat> Zechariah 1 verse 1, it says, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah the son of Berechiah, the son of Idor, the prophet, saying, The Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. Therefore say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, say, saith the Lord of hosts. Be ye not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye now from your evil ways and from your evil doings. But they did not hear nor hearken unto me, saith the Lord. Your fathers, were, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? And they returned and said, Like as the Lord of hosts thought to do unto us, according to our ways and according to our doings, so hath he dealt with us. Then verse 14, it says, So the angel that communed with me said unto me, Cry thou, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are, are, are at ease, for I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it, saith the Lord of hosts, and a line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. Cry yet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, My cities through prosperity shall yet be spread abroad, and the Lord shall yet comfort Zion, and shall yet choose Jerusalem. And again, we believe God will bless the reading of his precious word to us uh, this morning. Well, as we uh, begin this uh, study in Zechariah, I guess a disclaimer right at the beginning, there's 14 chapters, and I believe I have six sessions. So um, don't, uh, somebody said, oh, I can't wait till you get to chapter 11. Somebody else said, why don't you start in chapter 14? And uh, I'm not sure where we're going to get, because recognize that time is a limitation, and so we'll see how we go. But at least I'd like to give an overview and a flavor of the whole book. And uh, whenever you're studying a book, uh, one of the first things that I do in trying to understand the book is I look for the key words and phrases, phrases and words that the Holy Spirit has sought to repeat. And so often those repeated words and phrases can give you the key to understanding the whole book. And so with Zechariah, as you read through this book, one thing you'll notice is that Jerusalem is mentioned 40 times, 4-0, 40 times in 14 chapters. Also, a phrase, the Lord of hosts, is mentioned 50 times, 5-0. In fact, the word Lord of hosts is mentioned more in the book of Zechariah than anywhere else in the whole Bible. And actually, Haggai also mentions the Lord of hosts, and you put it together, and both these prophets who prophesied at the same time mentioned the Lord of hosts, I think, 64 times. So tremendous emphasis on the Lord of hosts, and we'll think more about the significance of that uh, perhaps tomorrow morning. 
the key verse, if you put these key thoughts together, Jerusalem and the Lord of hosts, is Zechariah 1 verse 14. I think we read that in our reading. It says, The angel that communed with me said to me, Cry thou, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. And uh, I guess one way you can think about this is, I don't know if anybody, anybody here from Texas? Nobody here from Texas. I don't know if you've ever been to Texas. Texas, people in Texas like guns. Uh, They have lots of guns. And uh, you can buy almost anything in Texas. You want to buy a bazooka or a surface-to-air missile, you you can buy one in Texas. And uh, they have a saying in Texas, don't mess with Texas, right? And there's reason for that. They'll just shoot holes in you if you mess with Texas, right? And uh, I think we could put it this way. When it comes to Jerusalem... What God is saying is, don't mess with Jerusalem. You know why? Because the Lord of hosts is jealous for Jerusalem with a godly jealousy. And we'll see that theme throughout this book. Uh, God is going to say in the later chapters that anybody that troubles themselves with Jerusalem, uh, it'll be a burdensome stone to them. And uh, we we see that. I think that if you look at history... uh, The Abrahamic covenant says that God will bless those that bless Israel and the descendants of Abraham, and he'll curse those that curse them. Uh, I think that our country has been blessed and favored by God, primarily because we have favored Israel. I'm also very fearful for the future of this country because of our changing policy. Uh, actually, uh, uh, there's a book that came out recently. I haven't read it, but somebody read it and told me about it. And he said that every time that America has sought to encourage Israel to give up land for peace, there has been a corresponding disaster that occurred simultaneously with our messing with the land of, of Israel. So certainly, uh, that's the theme of this book. Don't mess with Jerusalem, because the Lord of hosts, he is jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. So this man, Zechariah, uh, when did he minister? Well, uh, he, along with Haggai and Malachi, are what we call post-exilic prophets. That means they ministered after the 70 years of exile in Babylon, when the remnant had returned. And so these men, uh, they ministered at that particular time. And primarily their ministry is to encourage the rebuilding of the house of God in, uh, as they've returned back to Jerusalem. So that is the focus of their ministry. And the corresponding books that go along with uh, Zechariah and Haggai particularly would be Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Ezra, Nehemiah for those that have returned, Esther for those that stayed uh, in the, uh, what was then the Medo-Persian Empire and did not return. And uh, by the way, did anybody read the whole book of Zechariah last night? One, okay, two, okay, we got a couple. Well, let me just say this. In Scripture, you know faithfulness, you know what that results in? If you're faithful in a little work, God will give you more work to do. You know, that's how it goes, isn't it? And so those of you that did read Zechariah, can you read tomorrow Ezekiel 3 through 6? Sorry, Ezra 3 through 6. Because uh, we'll see that Ezra's chapter, Ezra's chapter 3 through 6 are really going to be uh, the background to this particular prophecy. Haggai and Zechariah, they, they ministered uh, together and pretty much team taught. 
um, what we find is that uh, Haggai gave three prophecies. All of them were in the second year of the reign of Darius. And then Zechariah ministered again uh, uh, after the three initial prophecies of Haggai. Then comes Zechariah with a prophecy. And then we find that uh, Haggai ministered again. And then in comes Zechariah again. So it was like these men, it was like a one-two. They were team teaching to the nation. Uh, We'll also observe that these two men, uh, one of them was an older man, that would be Haggai, the other was a younger man. And so they ministered together at the same time to the same people, had a slightly different approach. Uh, You might say the older man, Haggai, was a lot more blunt. He basically said, why are you living in fancy houses when the house of God is in ruins? That was his message. And his message was, your priorities are wrong. If you want a New Testament kind of contemporary, what you'd say is this. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what you should be doing. Putting first the things of God. But instead, you're building your own fancy houses and God's houses in ruins. So he was definitely a lot more blunt and direct. On the other hand, um, the ministry of Zechariah was a lot more encouraging. He also said, get involved in building the house of God. But instead of saying, you know, you should be not building your own houses, what he said was, get involved in building the house of God because you're involved in something that God is going to really do something here. He's going to really glorify this house. And you have a a privilege of being part of something massive, something wonderful, something that's going to have eternal significance. And... uh, Certainly, I think that we can see a lot of parallels to today that um, we also, uh, as believers, need to get our priorities straight. Right? We should be concerned about building the house of God. Now, we're not thinking of bricks and mortar. We're thinking of a house that's comprised of living stones, right? And we should be giving ourselves for that which God is owning and that ultimately is going to have eternal significance. I don't know what company you work for or whatever, but you could work for some Fortune 500 company or whatever. But I want to tell you something. It won't survive the fire. Right? It's going to go up in a puff of smoke one day. But what will last and survive the fire is the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. It will be eternally the object of the affections of the Lord Jesus forever. And so what he says is, get involved in that which is lasting and precious and valuable. And so certainly there's great parallels for today. <clears throat> I really like the idea of these two men ministering together. Uh, it reminds me of uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Again, very similar situation. Uh, two men ministered to the same group of people, of course. Jeremiah was those in, in, uh, still in Jerusalem. Ezekiel was those in captivity, but they ministered together. And much of their messages overlapped, and, and they were very different in style. Uh, Jeremiah, he's the weeping prophet, right? Every time he speaks, he bawls like a baby. And, and uh, Ezekiel, he's a tough nut. He's, he's got a head like a diamond. And he says, you know, don't be scared of your, their faces. And you just tell them straight. And so you've got that beautiful combination. It's amazing the lengths that God goes to to speak to his people, 
right? Uh, he really is concerned to getting his message across. And we see team teaching throughout church history. Uh, Whitfield and Wesley ministering together. Uh, lots of those examples. And, and certainly we want to make sure that we, uh, we work together as, as believers in seeking to promote that which is encouraging to the things of God. So when did he minister? 520 years before the birth of Christ in Bethlehem of Judea. Okay? And uh, uh, his prophecy uh, basically went for a period of 25 months, uh, two years, one month. We know that because he, he dates his prophecy very clearly. Uh, for instance, verse 1 says, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord to Zechariah, the son of the Berechiah, the son of Ido, the prophet, saying. So we know that that's when he began his ministry. Second year, eighth month. Look at chapter 7 and verse 1. And again, he dates a, a next prophecy. And he says, It came to pass in the fourth year of King Darius that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah in the fourth day of the ninth month, even in Chislu. So he prophesied for a period of 25 months, two years, one month, uh, to the nation of Israel. Now, some key dates that I think are very significant that we need to kind of get in our minds. First of all, um, 605 B.C. That was when uh, Babylon first basically uh, attacked the nation of uh, Judah and they took the temple treasures uh, uh, captive to Babylon. They also took with them Daniel and many of the intellectual elite, 605 B.C. 586 B.C., Babylon was uh, destroyed Jerusalem and uh, took the people into captivity for 70 years. The land was laid desolate. God wanted the land to enjoy its Sabbaths, okay? So for 70 years, the land was desolate. 536 B.C., Babylon falls. And 50,000 Jews are allowed to return to the land of Israel. 535 B.C., this group of 50,000 Jews that return, the first thing that they want to do is lay the foundation for the temple. And they do that, 535 B.C. But as soon as they do that, and we'll look at that more uh, later on, there was a lot of opposition. Uh, the Samaritans, uh, the forerunners of the modern-day Samaritans, first of all, they said, we want to help you in this project of building the house of God. And they said, no, we can't, we can't have your help. We do not want the help of people who are not the people of God in the things of God, right? The work of God needs to be done by God's people. We don't need your help. We don't want your help. And so because they wouldn't let the Samaritans help them, then they said, okay, if you're not going to let us help, we're not going to let you build. And so they opposed it. And the opposition uh, ended up in a letter being written uh, to the king. And the king wrote and said, stop the work. And so basically the work came to a grinding halt. And so the foundation was laid, but that was it. And so nothing happened until we get to 520 BC. This is where Haggai and Zechariah begin to minister. As a result of their ministry, the people were encouraged to once again get to work and rebuild the house of God. And in 515 BC, the temple was completed. So their ministry was successful. Now, who really was this man Zechariah? 
Okay, we've thought about when did he minister. Now we need to ask the question who, who he was. And what we find is that he was a young man. Notice in chapter 2 and verse 4, <coughs> it says, uh, And said unto him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. Now this phrase here, young man, go and speak to this young man, of course referring to Zechariah, it is the same word that was used in 1 Samuel 17 and verse 33. And 1 Samuel 17, if you remember your Bible well, you'll realize that was a story of David and Goliath. And remember that David came to volunteer to fight this giant. And one of the things that was said to him is, you're nothing but a youth. How dare you be so preposterous to think you could fight against this skilled warrior when you're just, we'd say, you're just a kid. <clears throat> and um, that, was, uh, that was David, the shepherd boy. And he was just a youth, a teenager. It's a funny thing, isn't it, that um, we don't expect too much from our young people. I think that's a gross mistake. I have a friend, a young man, he's 19, and uh, I've kind of done some work with this young man, and he's a very keen young man. And uh, recently, for different reasons, he ended up having to move to France. And he's living in France, and he's in an assembly there, and he said that people don't even break bread until they're 50 because they don't think they're worthy. So I, I thought to myself, well, if that's the case, the Lord Jesus and the disciples wouldn't have been able to break bread. Do you know that, um, that in 1826, when the first breaking of bread, where there was not a clergyman present, where simple revival of, of New Testament principles occurred in Dublin, Ireland, that the youngest person there was a man called Stokes. He was 19. The oldest person there was a man called Anthony Norris Groves. He was 28. You know that the history of the Brethren Movement, it was really a youth movement. Do you know that these same young men became the world's leading experts in Bible prophecy in their early 30s? And we say, young people are not fit to be let loose until they're 50? What nonsense! Let me just say this, that Spurgeon was preaching to crowds of thousands in London when he was a teenager. He was known as the boy preacher. See, I just think somehow we're missing things. Hudson Taylor, 16 years of age, lays prostrate on the ground and presents his body a living sacrifice. 21 years of age, he hits the shores of China. I was in China in 2004, and the Christians in the underground church in China are still talking about Hudson Taylor. 21. You see, think about it. 70 is what we're allotted. And if by reason of strength, right, 80. That means if we wait for our young people to be 35 before we let them loose, they're half done. Right? I mean, that's, if you're 35, you're, you're, you're halfway there. One of the great joys of serving the Lord in India recently was that I had a classroom full of young men, somewhere between the ages of 19 20 to 25, 
who were committed to taking the gospel to the north of India. Many of them know that they'll be persecuted. Some of them expect they may die, but they're ready. What a thrill to just invest in people like that. And I realized I'm, I was 52 yesterday. If 35 is half done, I'm just about fossilized, right? It's almost all over for me. So the time I've got left, I want to invest in young people. Because let me tell you, every assembly is one generation away from extinction. Isn't that true? Every assembly is one generation away from extinction. And so here's a young man. Now think about this. Daniel was taken into captivity and he was a young man, a teenager. Took a stand for God, right, over the not defiling himself with the king's meat. God gave him amazing visions of the future of Israel. And we love studying the book of Daniel, okay? That's a man going into captivity. Zechariah is one of the young men that comes out of captivity, another teenager, and God gives him amazing visions of God's future dealings with Israel. Timothy was a young man, wasn't he? Paul poured himself into the life of a Timothy. Some of you older brothers, can I ask you, have you got any Timothys? Are you working with any Timothys? Uh, are, are we investing in the next generation? Are we, do we dare, dare let them loose in our pulpits? Do we, are we willing to do that? It's a risky business, right? But I want to tell you something. If you keep them from serving, you know what will happen is they'll find some um, uh, parachurch organization that will eat them up. They will, just, they will use them and they will make the most of their service. If we don't use them in the assembly, they will find a place for their zeal to find an outlet. And we'll, we'll have lost the privilege of that young person. So I, I just encourage you to think about these things. This young man, God is going to use him tremendously. Now, of course, uh, he's also a young man from a priestly family. Uh, if you look at Nehemiah chapter 12, Nehemiah chapter 12, we'll notice some of the things about this. It says, uh, verse, uh, we read the first four verses and then verse 16. So it says, Now these are the priests and the Levites that went up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, Seriah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Malok, Hattush, Shechaniah, Rehum, Meramoth, and then it says, Ido, Ginnatho, Abijah. So keep a focus on Ido. Then verse 16 it says, of Ido, Zechariah, of Ginnathan, Meshulam. Now again, look at chapter 1 uh, of Zechariah chapter 1. It says, in the eighth month, uh, verse 1, should I say, in the second year of Darius came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Ido, the prophet, saying. And so we know that this man was a priest. And so his ministry in encouraging them to build the house of God, you could say that in a sense, he maybe had some selfish motives. See, what's the point of having a priest without a temple? Right? The priest, that's, that's where they ministered. And so in a sense, he has got a very personal interest in seeing the house of God rebuilt. 
His future ministry is at stake. He's a teenager. If they get their act together, he'll start ministering at 30 years of age. So, so no wonder he's passionate about them building the house of God because his very service is in view. It's amazing, actually, that when you look at the prophets, quite a number of them were priests and because of the disobedience of the nation of Israel, they were not allowed to function in their priesthood. Uh, Ezekiel would be an example. In fact, at 30 years of age, he begins to prophesy. That would have been that he was in captivity by the banks of the river Kibar. And, and if, if Israel had been behaving themselves and had followed the Lord, he would have just started ministering in the temple. But now he's a captive. But, but of course, uh, instead of being a priest, the Lord allows him to be a prophet. And of course, even though he never got to go into the very house of God in Jerusalem, although he did in a vision, uh, what he did see was he saw a vision of the glory of God. And it would affect his life forever. And so certainly we see that Jeremiah was a priest. Ezra was a priest. And so many of these men, uh, under normal circumstances, would have been functioning in the priesthood. But because of the rebellion of the nation, they ended up involved in a prophetic ministry. Zechariah also, in his prophecy, has a lot of things to say, actually, about the priesthood. And we'll see that in chapter 6 and chapter 9 and chapter 14. He, he certainly has a very priestly flavor to his ministry. I want to just think, and of course today's message is primarily introductory, but I want to think a little bit about uh, the, the history of Israel. And what you find is that from Moses to Samuel, you have Israel under judges. And basically, Israel were governed by judges who were the ones who gave the nation direction and leadership. And then from Saul to Zedekiah, we have Israel under the kings. And then from Joshua the high priest, which is this era now, the returning captives, we have really Israel Israel under the priests, and that would continue till A.D. 70, when Israel would be uh, under the leadership of the priests. Currently, we have Israel under the politicians. <laughs> That's why we're such a problems over there. <clears throat> In a coming day, Israel will be under the Antichrist. And then, finally, Israel will be under a righteous judge who will also be a prophet, a priest, and a king. And Zechariah is going to speak a lot about that person. Now, <clears throat> Just as we are asking the question, who is the man Zechariah? Look with me, please, to Matthew 23. Matthew's Gospel, 20, chapter 23. And the Lord Jesus mentions Zechariah in verse 35. Matthew 23 and verse 35. As he speaks against the scribes and the Pharisees and denounces them for the hypocrisy, he says that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zechariah, son of Barachiah, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. So what we find is that Zechariah's ministry was very successful. He actually did see the temple rebuilt, and he actually literally died in the very temple that he saw rebuilt in his lifetime. 
killed by his own people, no doubt, because he saw them beginning to depart once again from the principles and the pattern that had been given in times past, and he's, he's trying to hold them to the truth. And they didn't like it, and so they killed him. Now, of course, there's some debate about this verse, because if you look at Second Chronicles, it's, uh, it's one of those uh, scriptures that uh, at least the higher critics have a real problem with, and there's the reason. Second Chronicles, uh, chapter 24, and verses 20 and 21. Second <clears throat> Chronicles 24, verse 20, it says, The Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, which stood above the people and said to them, Thus saith God, Why transgress ye the commandments of the Lord, that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he hath also forsaken you. And they conspired against him, and stoned him with stones at the commandment of the king in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king remembered not the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him. And so there are those higher critics that say, well, uh, Matthew 23 is really wrong. Uh, the Zechariah that was killed is this Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, and some zealous scribe uh, did what they call an interpolation. He put in uh, Zechariah, son of Berechiah, you see, in order to kind of uh, maybe say that it was Zechariah the prophet that we're thinking of. However... In answer to that, let me just say this. First of all, Zechariah is probably one of the most popular names in the Old Testament. I think there's 15 or 16 Zechariahs in your Old Testament. So no wonder there's confusion, right? It's a common name. And uh, the Jewish Targum, and uh, the Jewish Targum, certainly uh, the Jewish uh, teachers and rabbis would not want to do anything to support the teachings of the Lord Jesus. They were militantly opposed to him. But in the Jewish Targum, it says this, Zechariah, the son of Ido, a prophet and a priest, was slain in the sanctuary. And, uh, of course, uh, that, that, uh, the site for that, if you want to uh, get the reference for that, it's in John Nelson Darby's book, The Irrationality of Infidelity. And so what we're saying is, actually, this man, Zechariah, is the one the Lord Jesus mentioned, and he literally died in the house that he was uh, responsible for seeing built under God, along with Haggai. And he died there because he stood for the truth. By the way, I think there's a need for Zechariah's today. I see departure from the pattern that was given, not from the Holy Mount, like Moses in the Old Testament, but from the pattern given by the risen, glorified head of the church, the Lord Jesus, I see departure constantly as I travel from New Testament principles. And it's a time for somebody to stand up and say, enough's enough. God's word is not negotiable. And just as John 3.16 is absolutely crystal clear, so is New Testament principles. My son, he's uh, working in Norway and uh, trying to start an assembly there. And they've been uh, using Randy Amos's book, 
uh, on the New Testament church. And uh, uh, they've been studying with a, a group of believers. They've got 17 of them meeting together. And they were uh, last week they were going through the issue of the headship and symbolic uh, practice of head covering. And uh, one guy chirps up and said, well, it's only mentioned once. As if to say, so we don't have to. So my son, very wisely, and I have to say, uh, he's 27 and he's streets ahead of where I was when I was 27 years of age. And he said, you know, he's newly married. He's been married a year. And he says, if my wife says something to me once, that's enough for me. I love her. (laughs) See, he said, if it's a relationship with somebody you love, you don't count how many times they say it. If they say, remember David? David, under his breath, just said, Oh, that I had a drop of water from the well of Bethlehem. And David's mighty men loved David. And just that under his breath suggestion was enough for them to risk their lives to get water for David. Well, if the Lord Jesus, through the Apostle Paul, says once that a woman should... For this cause ought a woman have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. You know what? That's enough for me. Right? How many times does he have to say it to you? So, you know, sometimes I just think um, our reasoning is absolutely ridiculous. If it's a heart of love, a heart of love, the Lord Jesus says, if you love me, it's not legalism. I'm not legalistic. I'm in love with the Lord Jesus. And he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's enough for me. <clears throat> so, so this man, um, we've talked about who he was. We've talked about when he ministered. And Lord willing, tomorrow, because it is now 1015, we'll think about why he ministered. And, uh, and then look at some of the opening verses together. Let's just pray. Our Father, we, we are so grateful for a young man, a teenager, that you were willing to entrust with amazing prophecies of your future dealings with the nation of Israel. Father, will you give us the confidence in our young people to entrust them with responsibility in the work of God and in the house of God? We're thankful for the great history of young people that gave their energy, their zeal, their intellect to the service of Christ. Forgive us for our low expectations of our young people. We're thankful for the young people that are here that could be lots of other places this week, but they've chosen to be here. We ask that you would encourage them greatly in their desire to serve the Lord Jesus, the best of masters. Father, we pray for faithfulness and fidelity to the pattern given by the risen, glorified head of the church, the Lord Jesus. We ask that we might not rationalize or try to get around the plain, obvious statements, but because we love the Lord Jesus, that we would relish any opportunity to please him. We'll give thee the glory, the name of our lovely Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.